Christian Stolte made me cry. It was 2003 at the Steppenwolf Garage Theater, and he was appearing in a play called Orange Flower Water by Craig Wright. It's a story of infidelity that turns the lives of two small-town couples upside down. And man, that production packed a punch. I like the way a Windy City Times review characterized Stolte's performance. Christian Stolte has the bravura role as the explosively foul-mouthed Brad, his self-centered swagger reduced to a confession of need and love that comes too late. The whole cast was great, particularly Chris and the late, lovely Molly Glynn. They were devastatingly good. But then that's been the case in everything I've ever seen Chris do, including little moments in movies where much of his work, like the work of a lot of character actors in secondary roles, often ended up on the cutting room floor, like when he was one of Johnny Depp's crew in Public Enemies, or one of Paul Newman's henchmen in The Road to Perdition. And he has a million stories where he was this close to landing a role in some promising TV series, only to have the pilot fail or his part in it rug pulled. Always one of the most respected actors in town, he suffered more than his share of disappointment, or maybe that's just part of the deal for a working actor, especially one who determines that he's going to stay in Chicago. So when he hit pay dirt as Mouch in the Dick Wolf series Chicago Fire, you would have to pardon him for barely believing his good fortune. He probably looks over his shoulder still, but no matter what happens now, the fact is he spent four years going on five as a regular cast member on a network television show so successful it spawned three spin-offs. That much is in the bank. And you can't help but be thrilled for a guy who did his work, paid his dues, hung in there, and then actually got what he so richly deserved. About 15 years ago, Chris appeared in a little independent film that I wrote and directed called Something Better Somewhere Else. We were shooting in an alley late one night doing a very emotional scene where he drunkenly unloads on his best friend who he feels abandoned by. We were trying to get it in one take, a long steady cam shot, and we were near an L track, so we needed to time it to get it done between trains. We did our first long take, and Chris was amazing, heartbreaking, flawless. He worked himself up to a tearful rage. And before he could get it all out, a train drowned him out. I said, you know what? That was amazing. Let's break this down in pieces so you don't have to do that again. And he said, I can do it. And I said, I don't know if it's necessary to do the whole scene, do it all in one. And he said, I can do it. So we did. And he worked himself up to that same level of balls-out intensity, tears and venom. If anything, he was even better the second time. And my assistant director looked at me like, Jesus... This guy is a machine. But of course, he's not a machine. A machine has no heart. Chris, on the other hand, is all heart. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. You can chew up the mint while we're rolling. While we're rolling? Why do you need a mint? I'm I'm half a mile away from you. It's for me. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's changing the, the, the landscape of the inside of my mouth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the atmosphere. I got gotcha. you. The atmosphere inside my mouth. Now I think I'm actually catching a whiff of it, so it's, I'm enjoying it too. Okay, great. Well, would you like one? Yeah. All right. Excellent. What kind of mints are these? Like an Altoid? No, they're, they're uh, Sagaftra mints. Oh, they make mints? No, they don't make mints. These are nice. You got these for free, I take it. No, I refill the tin with, I'm going to say icebreakers, perhaps. 
But the tin is handy because it's flat. <clears throat> and uh, I line the inside of it with a, a Kleenex that I fold down to size um, because I will carry them on set with me and you don't have any of the rattle of the mints on the metal box uh, when you line it properly like a like a tiny coffin, like a little mint coffin. You really thought it through. Uh, no, that was all just, that was sort of the thought that comes when you decide not to think. Mm -hmm. it was like, and my hands just started reaching for the Kleenex. I said, my body knows how to solve this problem. And then when I woke up or came to or re-entered my own consciousness i saw what i had done and i was pleased with me are we are we gonna start rolling yeah we're we're rolling um oh, wait i'll cut all that out okay thanks yeah um so you're talking about being in the set of chicago fire correct is that when this oh uh, yeah that's right that's when the so we really have started yeah and just so i know is i'm gonna cut all that out going to be sort of a comedic refrain that people will actually hear over and over on the podcast because you, in fact, don't cut any of it out? No, I cut stuff out, but right. I can't promise you that I'll cut out the things I'm saying I'm going to cut out. Ah, damn it. We won't know right. till later All right. what's worthy of being cut I'm out. I'm filled with pregret. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of this will probably get cut out, too. All right, good. I don't think probably anything we've done so far will be used. In that case, this is what's leading me to wonder because you seem to be sort of pursuing the conversation in earnest, and it made me think, this is a cold. This is a cold open. You don't you don't set it up at all. You don't uh, you don't have an intro or anything. With like me that. today is Christian Stolte, um, the Chicago Fire Star. You may know him as Mouch. He's also the star of stage and screen and many many memorable performances. <laughs> is this what you wanted? No, I just I like that you just the, launched right into it. The first the... time I saw him was in Orange Flower Water. Oh my, at the really? Steppenwolf Garage. He was a uh, you'd been in the you'd been on the scene for a while by that point, hadn't you? Sure. Had you I, been on a lot of in a lot of stage stuff by the time you did yeah, that? Yeah, that was pretty much all I was doing. Anything else was just sort of a, a lucky little payday of a day or a week, you know, along the way, but I've been doing theater kind of back to back since probably 1990 or at least shortly after that I got here I moved here permanently in 1990 and I don't know when my f you know first I remember what the first play was but I don't remember when it was um but you know for 20 something years 25 years something like that wow so that play was that a big kind of break for you well, I guess anything you do at Steppenwolf has a higher profile. It's, uh, you know, it wasn't a main stage production or anything like that, but it was a big role. It was just four people in it, two couples. It was a big role, and it was sort of a, a bombastic, dynamic role. So I guess in a way that I never come to... You think about that, and maybe you can look back and say, well, this was a big turning point, and to some extent, some things I can, but... When I look at it, in the experience of actually doing Orange Flower Water, I can't say there was any focus, any awareness of anything other than the doing of the job itself. The impact of the job or what could this give me? Will somebody see this and offer me something or let, you know, will this open a door? I can't say any of that occurs to me as it's going on. 
Maybe, maybe because the job itself is a little overwhelming. It's so demanding that I can't just breeze through it and, and step back and look at it and say, I wonder how this is going to change the course of anything. Uh, it takes everything I have just to do a job like that. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, and, th and that's not, that sort of sounded like I was making a hero of myself or something. <laughs> I guess what I'm really saying is I'm not a super achiever. <laughs> <laughs> just doing that job, I was taxed enough. I was spent just from, you know, performing it. I remember that being a very emotional show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean. I, like heartbreaking. Right. Yeah, very raw kind of hard to watch which i can attest to because the four actors when you weren't on the stage you were seated in the house was uh, the director rick snyder's decision early on which as soon as i heard that i had to reconfigure because when i look at the script the first thing i do if i realize i'm going to be doing this play the first thing i do i'm not even kidding as i look and figure out when my bathroom opportunities are when will I be able to slip out? All right, this is a long scene, and then there's this, and then there's another scene I'm in right after that, and there's no way I can safely get to the bathroom. And, and you know, Just because that is such a hardcore, real concern when you're actually doing a play. So when Rick said, yeah, I think uh, when you guys aren't on the stage, I'm going to have you seated out in the house, you know, sort of not really conspicuously, but right there in strategically chosen seats, um, one of you on each, you know, a, a thrust stage, one of you on each side here. And uh, and I thought, oh, no, 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 no. Well, look what that just did. There are, there are no bathroom breaks now. <laughs> there aren't any. Um, and it was, uh, it was done without an intermission. I think it came in at about maybe 80 minutes, something like that. But still, that, who knows, in that 80 minutes for me, uh, and, and there's the, the whole psychological aspect of do I have to use the toilet you know I'm talking mm -hmm. about urinating here just for the record so okay we can, good. so number we can one. focus so we can focus sure. on one thing I just i need to know it's number one yeah and you know it's a psychological thing once you sort of get it if it's inconvenient to have to use the bathroom and you're at a state a state where you kind of have to use the bathroom my mind anyway will push it towards dude you gotta you gotta find a bathroom right now there's just not, you know, there, there's no way out of this situation. So that became a real paranoid thing for me in the doing of that show. And there was one scene where I get in a fight with my wife, um, Whitney Sneed. Um, I, get, I get in a fight with her and I, I storm out of the room or actually go off stage. It's the only, only moment I'm actually off stage and not in the audience. And then I, come, I go to find something and I come back into the room. And one time I decided I'm going to use the bathroom. I have to do it. I have no choice. This is, I, 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 and I'm out in the audience, by the way, in my little designated seat watching the, the action that I'm not a part of. And I'm thinking, oh, this is the night. This is the night. I'm going to have to do it during the scene with Brad and Beth. And I'm going to have to, when I leave, I'm going to have to scoot over there to the, uh, to the green room toilet. And then I'm going to bust back on here and she's going to be waiting a little longer than she's used to waiting for me, but it'll all work out. And I was almost right about that <laughs> because she ended up waiting a lot longer than she was used to waiting because of this weird sort of psychological kind of, Oh, you really got to go. Well, maybe now you can't, but you have to, but you can't. 
So there's the the sort of stall at the toilet and whatever, and I'm sneaking out. And then unfortunately, it's very quiet in that moment in that little garage space, and you could just hear the bathroom door kind of click shut. <laughs> it was just you know insanely amplified. So I came out there, and I, you know I don't know how much the rest of the audience really knew, but those who knew knew. You know, and this poor woman I'm about to do the rest of the scene with, she she knew. So that's the thing we, as we look each other in the eyes, that's the thing we both thinking about but can't talk about. And uh, I just turned the entire experience of doing Craig Wright's Orange Flower Water into just a toilet story. <laughs> well, but that, you know, I have to admit, I've seen a couple productions where everybody has to sit out there the whole time. Mm-hmm. As an audience member, it makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, me too. I, I think, I, I think we're it gets in, in the, my way. Yeah, I think we're probably in the minority there, though. What What would be the, what's What's the general purpose of having people present for <sighs> things that they're not supposed to know about? It's probably a case by case explanation. In our case, there was no reason for me to bring up my idiosyncratic problem when Rick, you know, introduced the idea. Because I, I, I don't know if I can remember his exact explanation, but I do remember that I agreed with him. That in this case, there's, there was something about that, yes, people are going to be distracted by it and they're going to look at us and you are going to be watching the scene and you are going to be reacting as if in some weird alternate universe way you are witnessing these events as they unfold. So you weren't really in performance mode but you would sit and you would watch or there would be some scenes where I would instinctively because you do sort of feel like you're sitting out there in character. I mean, I'm in the character's wardrobe sure. and you know, the, the, uh, one of the many characters that I play whose wardrobe is entirely chosen from the international douchebag catalog, you know? So you feel automatically different, you know? A Hawaiian shirt kind of guy. He was a Hawaiian shirt kind of guy is what he was. And so... There were times I'd be, you know, I'm watching this guy, uh, you know, have sex with my wife, you know, and I just, I, I, I'd watch. But watching from this detached point of view where you're not supposed to know about it. It's a weird in between. Right. It's almost as if here we are now after all this has taken place. I see. In a weird way. Okay. That you makes know? some kind of sense. It, it's not written into the play. So it's not a thing you can find explained anywhere in the text of the play. Hmm. It's a thing we were reconciling, we were reckoning with it because we made this choice. So I would turn away for the most part. Once it would reach a really intimate point between the two of them, I would just kind of turn away. But I also kind of had a little bit of that reaction as me right. watching it, which right. is a lot of my, I, uh, I, I don't, I'm not prudish by any means. But when I see actors getting a little too literally naked and it starts to get a little too... I, I, I'm not saying I object to that being in plays. All I can tell you is I tend to kind of look away. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think I have the same Catholic guilt. Uh, yours may not be that. I it's not even thought through. I don't even know if I know what it is. Other Modesty? Than, hey, I'm not supposed to be seeing this. Mo you know? Yeah, certain respect for... Yeah, maybe. And I do kind of wish it would go away. Mm -hmm. As I'm sitting there, I wish it would just, I hope this stops. I wish this would just stop. I think that when I watch movies and TV too. I, I know, you know what you mean. I, I, Okay, they're getting it on now. I, I understand. I don't need to see it. It's not moving the story along. It's just some salacious crap that mattered. It's an invasion of their privacy. Yes, yes. Yeah, I understand they have that. a little decency. 
people people i mean and it goes it feels like it's like these are artistic decisions or commercial artistic decisions that are being made based on premises from 30 40 years ago when people couldn't just watch porn anytime they want if that's what they want to watch like you we know? do now yes <laughs> like you do now <laughs> so <laughs> so it's not so you don't need to sprinkle in little suggestions of porn in your in your legitimate storytelling you know that's right in in, in this play though uh, there's a lot going on in the sex scene it's not they're not just humping you right. know what i mean okay, there, right. there, there is significant development going on in dialogue and whatever the story is advancing during that so i, I would give craig wright credit for making you know good storytelling use of a sex scene but it doesn't mean i wanted to sit there and watch it <laughs> right um you know we're sitting in a rather what does bucolic mean i was going to use the word bucolic uh of or reminiscent of the works of Charles Bukowski? No, you didn't not, know that. No, that's not. I one. believe it had. It's 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 uh it's. A, Is a this synonym a, of pastoral? Would this be a bucolic uh, setting here in your here in your home? It's at least the suggestion of it. Yeah, yeah. I think bucolic. You're usually in the country. Okay, maybe. Maybe. Well, but we're in a nice little suburb here. I told you the house reminds me of the houses that some of my friends grew up in or near where I grew up. Um, and you're, let's face it, a star of a network television show. I'm number I, 10 on the call sheet. Okay. So I, I use the, I use the word star more judiciously than well, you do. And, and, and your humility is appreciated. It's one of the best things about me. Nonetheless, you're a star of a network television show. That's weird. Um, it, and, and there's people like you're, you know, the houses are pretty close together. Everybody must know you know who you are in the neighborhood do, do people recognize knows. that that's the guy from the tv show people uh, um i know there are people who know um and but they're not necessarily fans of the show they just know somehow and there are a few like little clusters of like, younger people that'll do little drive-bys and yell hey mouch it was a. It was. It's not really a problem. It was getting to be a problem at a certain point, or at least it was threatening to be a problem. It was something that made me think, "Am I going to have to do something about this?" But it never really reached that point. It all sort of settled down. Uh, it's certainly not a big deal. I can tell you that. Well, you know, we've been friends for a while, and I've been out with you, and on a certain evening, and almost invariably somebody will come up and they'll want to take a picture with you or i remember that night too we were with tim simons from yes from veep and um i think it was at io and you guys really were you know surrounded by people who wanted to engage and take well, pictures look at where look at where we were okay i understand um, but i think I, I was also in wrigleyville with you once yeah you were walking down the street there was a ball game going on that night and you couldn't walk 10 feet without people stopping you to take a picture. That's that's sort of the specific example you mentioned there at Wrigleyville is a little bit of the the nightmare version of it. It's not the most prevalent version of it, but I remember going to the old IO space to see TJ and Dave and there'd be a Cubs game going on and they've got all of the bars lined up, you know, both sides of 
Clark Street, you know, one after another. And many of them have those wide open walls that are like, you know, they're all window walls, but they just open wide up. Right. You know, so you just kind of, you're walking past cocktail tables full of drunk people and there's no barrier between you. And one person will say something and it'll turn into sort of this uproar, but it's, I'm a little wary of, of drunken energy anyway. I bartended for quite a few years, and so I kind of know what it's like to be the sober person surrounded by drunk people. But when it's aggressive, drunken energy, even though it's it's enthusiastic and it's seemingly like it's pro-mouch enthusiasm, you get the feeling this could just turn on you. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> for whatever random reason, you know, you never know what will set drunk people off. But it's very aggressive in uh, in Wrigleyville. You know, the recognition is like, almost... Like, come here, put out this fire. Yeah, come yeah, put out this fire yeah. over here. The recognition is uh, is uh, violent. It's, you know, it's kind of hostile. Right. But you, I mean, you find yourself at this point in your life, I guess is what I'm saying, as a celebrity. I mean, you could easily be on celebrity game night and no one would think hey uh, that guy's not a celebrity i don't i i don't know i don't watch that particular show well, I, I, I'm, I'm not even sure that's the correct because name. i mean because if you think about it uh there there have been a few little things i've done that somebody might recognize me from other than chicago fire i once in a blue moon someone will recognize me from a uh, law-abiding citizen although i feel like i look considerably different now um, and people legitimately will come up and recognize me, and the thing that comes out of their mouth is, "You're the guy from Graveyard." Um, I'm not. I'm not shitting you. Can we say that? Yeah. Can say yeah. That. Um, <clears throat> swear up a storm. But it's, it, I, the way I think about it is, if you don't watch Chicago Fire, then I'm not a celebrity. And it's not like anything close to half the population watches the show. Do you, know, I, you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I do. But there's a little bit of denial because, like I said, I've been out with you where many people... See, I remember being at a restaurant. Do I have to name all the times I've been with right. you when people yeah. came up and needed to take their picture with you? Well, I guess if it's you're a, in a big enough crowd. It's a, if it's a one in 100 people watch Chicago Fire and you encounter more than 100 people, then somebody's going to recognize me from the show. They don't even have to be religious watchers of it. I mean, I know people from shows that I don't watch and I yeah. think, oh, there's that guy. Right. Um but it must be different for you to have to deal with that at this point. Yeah, I feel more like I'm, as far as that goes, I'm waiting for an opening on the D list. And then I can officially proclaim that I'm on some list. So you don't think life after you've become a regular on a network television show is the way you're received is not particularly different? Oh, it's entirely different. Oh, okay. Oh, no, I, I didn't mean to imply that. No, it's. It, it, I, I guess what I'm disputing is whether there's any real currency to that. Oh well, sure. Okay. You know um, that it's it's. There are some people will make a big fuss of it and will say I've never met anyone famous before, and I'll say you still haven't. <laughs> um, but 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 they'll they will look at it as as some weirdly significant moment to have say, oh my god, what are the odds that you would be here at the at CVS? And then I would say, well, I, I needed uh, dental floss, you know. I, or, I I have to go places and get things, you know, like it doesn't occur to them. You don't understand that I have to go places and get things. <laughs> but, uh, but, 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm having, trouble, having trouble returning to the original question. Yeah, things are significantly different. Um, I'm not pretending that I've... Look at it this way, though. Out of the... I don't even know how many people are, are on the show now. There's probably 12 or 13 regulars. There have been, uh, you know, four or five, I guess, that were around for a long time and then went away. I was at my... Considering my age, I'm 53... I was unfamous for longer than any of them. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Either they're considerably younger than me, or if they're anywhere close to my age, then they're people who were already famous for quite some time now. You know, right? Chief Bowden is close to my age, but I knew him from Oz. Right. You know, we think about how long long ago that was. Uh, Eigenberg is close to my age, but everyone knows he's Stan from Caroline in the City. Um. I always get that wrong. Uh, yeah. He's Stosh from the Golden Girls. No, that's not so it. That's either. not it. Uh, oh, he's uh, he's uh, Stoyos from uh, Designing Women. I think that's so, right. That's the one. Uh, yeah, he was Steve from Sex and the City, which I never, you know, I never saw that uh, that series. But he's certainly recognized by character name, you know, everywhere we go. Um, so I had fifty years of life as a completely unfamous person you know and you get pretty set in your ways you know you're not necessarily ready to adapt to being received by people in in a positive light something really unfair about it you know and and also i'm a little apprehensive about people starting off in my corner before they know me and i feel like sit tight (laughs) don't jump in just yet (laughs) in your opinion on me because it could easily go the other way. I mean, in a sense, this show, I know you've been through a bunch of different things and probably disappointments where you're in something and then you come to find you're not in it anymore. The Fugitive. The Fugitive. Tell me about that. Uh, <laughs> it was probably about as bad as it could get um, in, in terms of one of these stories. Because I was, ri- I was, uh, I auditioned for a part and he was a short order cook at a diner. And all I can tell you is that that script went through a lot of revisions. But in the revision that resulted in me being in in the version of it that, that resulted in me being this cast, is the Fugitive with Harrison Ford, correct? Tommy Lee Jones. That's the one. Yeah, good one. Really good movie. Um, in the version that resulted in me being cast, there was uh, he spent an unusually long time working at this diner, and I was some cook who was sort of uh, sexually harassing a waitress who he had befriended and then there's a little fist fight between Harrison Ford's character and, and me and uh, a good handful of scenes I even remember thinking well this is based on the TV series where uh, is it David Jansen? Yes. Yeah. Was always on the run. I mean you've got a movie here. You don't have the you don't you don't have serial episodes to move him from one place. He's got to do all his moving within one movie here. Why is he at this diner for so long? Well, don't worry, Chris. <laughs> he wasn't at that diner for long at all. So I ended up... Oh, I, I was living at uh, Dearborn and Division. There's a Starbucks there now. I was up on the fifth floor corner apartment. And somehow... There was no doorman in that building, but somehow I would wake up and script revisions had been slid under my door. So they got into the building, slid the new envelope with the new script. Of course, this is 
before, you know, you know how long ago that was. Nobody got eaten. There was no email. There was right. No. So um, I would get new versions of the script. And I kind of look through it and say, oh, let's see. And then, then one day a version of the script shows up. And uh, I don't remember what my character's name was. Let's call him Rusty. Rusty's not there anymore. I don't see Rusty in the script at all. And, you know, it's not as easy as searching on a, on a, on a computer where you used to, you know, do a search and find the name. So I had to go through the pages. And all of a sudden I realized, ah, they wised up. They got rid of this, his long extended stay at the, uh, at the restaurant. And now I don't think I have a job anymore. So I call my agent, and he's like, oh, I'll find out. And even when he finds out, it's not really, you know, good news. It's pretty much what I expected it to be. And then sometime later, uh, I had plenty of time to forget about it. A couple months went by. And also, we don't have the the knowledge that this is going to be a big blockbuster, you know, movie. Um, and I get a call from uh, my agent again saying, hey, they want to put a scene in back at the diner they want to use you um had they shot anything with you in the diner no they hadn't shot anything no 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 no. yeah they were still as i'm getting these scripts slid under my door it's still a couple months away from shooting gotcha so in that time i'm written out of it entirely and then sometime later they say there's a little scene it's not a big deal but it's a scene and they want to use you as the the cook you know and uh they shoot the scene and the scene is Harrison Ford. So it goes from this big sort of weird little sub story about me and this, him protecting this girl and me being the aggressor and the villain and whatever. And we get in a fight and he beats me up and all it goes from that to basically I watch Harrison Ford at, sitting at the counter while I'm flipping burgers. He looks up at the screen and sees the news story about the, the, the prison train prison van train crash escape and whatever and i look at him and look at the the uh screen and i kind of you know give him various levels of scrutiny depending on how heavy-handed the director wanted to be about it uh giving giving him some options basically so it be just became a a scene where harrison ford eats soup and gets nervous now (laughs) i'll ask you writer director ron lazaretti do you think that scene stayed in the movie? <laughs> you you may have been one of many people who looked at a television screen and looked at Harrison yes, Ford. I who looked have. at a newspaper and then looked right. over at Harrison Ford. I imagine they were probably pretty well stocked with that. All you're doing, all you're doing is making me mad because I mean, not just not you bring not just a cliche in that movie, a cliche across the broad spectrum of cinema. And I could have been one in the montage. I could have been one guy in your long double take montage. But now Wait I don't get to minute. be unless they kept the footage. Oh, I could find out if they kept the footage. But anyway, that got cut out, and I didn't know until I went to the premiere. I was still invited to the premiere. Ooh. Uh, so well, why do they do that? It's an oversight. They I'm just sure don't. Yeah, oversight. nobody's looking at it and realizing that you got cut. That's right. Wow. That's right. Uh, so yeah, I I knew the moment came and went, and I realized well, there's I, I'm cut out of that one. Uh, Any similar experiences? Any other tremendous disappointments like that you'd like to relive? It almost seems like you're steering me towards something. I, I'm not, I, and really. I, I can't imagine that you are. But uh, yeah, I would say a far worse one was uh, the Mel Gibson movie Payback. Uh, Brian Helgeland directed, and I believe he wrote it. Yeah, he wrote it as well. I remember um, that movie. Guy who wrote L.A. Confidential. Um, it, uh, it had a great part. 
had a great part in it. It's a, it's a remake of what's it called? Uh, Point Blank is that yeah, it? with I, Lee Marvin? I, yes, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and I was one of the mobsters. Uh, I was one of uh, Greg Henry's lieutenants. Uh, Greg Henry was, I think, Mel Gibson's ex-partner who double-crossed him, and he was part of, I think they called it the outfit in there. They made a point to always call it the outfit. Um, he was in... Uh, Steve Sinabro and I were his two lieutenants, and it was great. It was a great part. There was... Uh, a scene where you've seen the curb sandwich scene, I believe in American history X. Mm -hmm. It's something, it's a bit of, you know, it's got a little urban legend status to it, but I'm sure there've been some yahoos out there who actually have given somebody a curb sandwich. When you put the guy's upper teeth on the curb as he's prone in the street and then step on the back of his head. So there was a scene in American history X like that. Uh, the, the, I think that one came first, this would have come second, but a scene where, uh, Steve Sinabro and I hold David Paymer on the curb while Greg Henry steps on the back of his head, um, forcing him to bite down on the curb. It was at like uh, Franklin and Grand. They built a sort of rubber curb. I wonder if it, I always wonder if it's still there. I always kind of, when I'm in that neighborhood, I try to think, is this the intersection? I know it's the northeast corner of some intersection very near Franklin and Grant. I really mean to find out because I assume their responsibility is to replace it, the production, to replace that curb as it was before. And I assume they did that. But on the other hand, it looked the same. It was basically a hard enough sort of rubber that it's not going to be, it's not going to cause people to fall or anything like that. It was just a sort of something soft for David Pamer's teeth to sink into. <laughs> Um, so anyway, there was, like, there was a great scene there, and he breaks his teeth and all this stuff. And uh, I got a name in that scene. I remember David Paymer kind of doing me the favor because he's. I kind of want to plead with him. Um, does does he have a name? And uh, Brian was like, I don't know. Uh, I, I was thug number one or something like that. But I was definitely number one. I was definitely the uh, the higher ranking of the two oh, thugs. Hold on to that. Yep, yep. And he goes, uh, he goes, well, I don't know, what, what were you thinking? And I didn't, I, I wasn't thinking. I went, I don't know, do we have a Tommy yet? Uh, I don't think we have a Tommy. All right, you, all right, you be Tommy. So he's like, Tommy, please, come on, Tommy. So this is David Paymer pleading with me now. And, and of course, you know, making my character. A great, great, a great actor. Oh, absolutely. Terrific guy. Oh, absolutely. And a sweet guy. Yeah, I mean, I like he was making guy. my character more significant by giving me a name. I don't know if he knew that. He probably kind of understood that he was doing that. But that, for whatever reason, if you're an actor, you get it. That felt good. Now, sure. now I'm Tommy. Right. I'm not thug number one. I'm Tommy. Um, so there was that scene. There was a great scene in uh, where I'm sitting under the train tracks. You know how much people who shoot here from out of town, they love the goddamn trains. They love the L. Uh, so I'm under the train tracks. Maria Bello pulls up in a delivery van. I'm sitting in my car by myself. And she says, uh, you're in a, a, a loading zone. And I say, so? And she says, uh, so move. I said, move me. And she pulls away. And as I'm distracted, Mel Gibson is sneaking into the back of the car. And then he holds a gun to my head and he says, move, you move. And I, we pull around and Steve Sinabro's parked over here. And I, I kind of nod at him, get in. He gets in and now Gibson's got the gun on both of us. We get in the back of this meat truck and... Uh, and he's in there with Maria Bello and me and Steve Sinabro. So it's a really cool-looking little scene. And uh, Sinabro's character uh, says, uh, 
looks at Maria Bello and says, I think I made love to you once. He doesn't use those words. And uh, Mel Gibson says, uh, yeah, well, what do you think the odds are of, that, of doing it again? And Mel goes up to Brian and says, I feel like I should, I feel like I should shoot him. He goes, oh, well, that's not how the scene goes. Yeah, I feel like after that I would, I would probably kill him. And he's got a good point, considering how capriciously he's killed people in this movie up to this point. I feel like this guy would be on the list for sure. He goes, I don't have a squib. I don't have anything. He goes, I'll, uh, and Mel goes, I'll lift his arm. I'll, sh- I'll, I'll stick the gun up under his arm and shoot it right in. You know, you wouldn't have a squib. You wouldn't have anything like that. I'll just shoot it right into his heart like that. It's a quick death. It was sort of like he knew something, you know, and it did. That is what happened, and it did work. And uh, Sanabro and I were handcuffed at that point. So he kind of falls, he falls, slumps down to the floor of the meat truck, and I kind of get jerked down like that. And then you know, now we don't have dialogue written for this part because this isn't part of what happens. So as we're rolling, Mel just goes, uh, what about you? You got anything smart you want to say? And I said, uh, no, thank you. And then that's how the scene ends. They scram, and I'm left kind of jerked down on one shoulder with the weight of Sinabro and... Uh, and left alone in the truck there. Uh, anyway, a few other really cool scenes. I go to see the movie. Oh, and there's also like a year and a half goes by. A conspicuously long amount of time goes by between shooting it and having it released. And I didn't know what to make of that. But then I started hearing, oh, yeah, Mel did some reshoots. Well, I go to the theater to see it. Mel did some real reshoots. He did some big-time reshoots, and I'm not in this movie anymore. And it was the most significant role I had had up to that point in anything. And I'm just not in it. He totally rewrote it. In fact, it started to remind me of the movie Ransom that he did with Gary Sinise uh, that came out about the same time. It was like, well, this is back-to-back the same movie now. And Brian didn't want to direct those rewrites. Uh, And so somebody else directed the rewrites. And this thing was just now I didn't even know what it was anymore. And uh, so I was pretty furious about it. 15 years go by. I'm doing something at some theater and somebody, I think Ben Whirling or somebody says to me, hey, I uh, I saw you in, uh, uh, I'm forgetting, the Payback. I saw you in Payback. That uh, that was pretty cool. You had some good stuff in that. I said, you didn't see me in Payback. I'm, I'm not in Payback. He goes, uh, yeah, the Mel Gibson movie. I said, no, I know. We're both talking about the same thing. I'm not in that movie. He goes, oh, maybe I think it's a director's cut or something. You should. 15 years later, he puts out, he he. Mel Gibson hires Brian Helgeland or just kind of contacts him and says, do you want to put a, out a director's cut of that movie? There's a little making of featurette on the disc, you know. So he goes, uh, yeah. He goes, all right, uh, whatever you want to do. And Mel just hands it over to him. I don't know if Mel had second thoughts or what, why it would even still be on his mind 15 years later. He hands it over to him. Helgeland arranges for a new score to be composed and all of this and changes the look of it and all of this and puts in a bunch of the old stuff. And suddenly, I'm. Be- no one told me. There's no premiere 15 years later to be invited to <laughs> the for the release cut. of a director's cut DVD. But anyway, uh, the curb sandwich scene was still left out, which was sad. But uh, a few of the other things were, and it really did look cool. You know, the stuff looked really good. And for my money, of course, I'm, 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 I'm not pretending to be objective but it's the better version of the movie um clearly but uh, that's the longest i'd ever gone between shooting something and then seeing it that has to be heartbreaking oh yeah i mean when you find out that that thing that you think you're in you're not in anymore it teaches you to not get your hopes up and it's kind of a sad thing because it also trains you away from excitement and celebration 
because you come to realize at what point is it legitimate to celebrate? Uh, I got an audition and it went well. All right. Curb your enthusiasm for a moment there, buddy. It's right. not time to celebrate. I got a call back and it went well. All right. Not yet. I just got put on hold. Still things could go wrong. I you, booked you, the job. You, still not time to celebrate. You've been like that. I mean, I've tried to say, hey, that's great. You got that thing or you're in that pilot yeah. or you're in the whatever. And you, you, your general attitude with that stuff is... Yeah, well, I've come by that attitude honestly. It, it's uh, it's a survival thing, because you're right. It really it it sinks you, man. It it's really it it hurts to let yourself be up here in anticipation of something. I mean, even with Chicago Fire, you've at various times said, "Well, I don't know how long." You know, like yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I want to be realistic about it. I mean, the, I I understand the show could go for twenty years. I see how it could. But I don't know if my character would be part of it for 20 years. I mean, for starters, I turned 50 season one. I am not going to be a 70-year-old firefighter. Uh, they're not going to find any reasons to keep me around once I'm no longer a firefighter. Well, maybe you have a bar at that point. It's like Archie Bunker's place, and um, they, all the firefighters yeah, come what, to your bar. I, ha I, I deeply regret that they didn't make me part of the bar crowd, yeah. part of the bar owner crowd. Right, because that would have... Well, be, and also because, yeah, that could have kept me on the show but also the guys that own the bar cross over into all the other shows oh, right, right. all the time because for whatever reason this neighborhood bar is the official hangout sure. of firefighters cops doctors and nurses and probably lawyers I, I can almost promise you attorneys will be hanging out at molly's on on attorney night you know so yeah i don't really i mean this dick wolf thing is an amazing phenomenon isn't it is there anybody else in television right now who is kind of owning it to the degree that he does and have, I mean, with a franchise like that. Boy, not that I'm aware of. I mean, how do you go, how do you do that, uh, you know, the law and order kind of stuff, do all of that, and right about the time that starts to kind of level off a little bit, you start an entire new... I don't know. I, I'm not in those meetings, but I have the same curiosity th that you do. I, I, what is it that he? What is it, the exact thing that he has such a firm handle on? Like, what's it like in those meetings where they kind of conceive of the show, or where they shape and sort of create the concept of the show? Because I feel like that's where he knows exactly what he's doing, and that's where he imparts the wisdom to those who need to know, but I'm never part of those meetings. You know, I just, I just show up. How active a hand does he take? Uh, I mean, in, in terms of what you would see on Chicago fire. Uh, I think, well, again, that's outside the scope of what I observe, but I know that if there's something that's being considered and it has any real consequence to it, that ultimately we, it will be submitted to Dick Wolf for him to approve or deny. Does he ever come to town? Oh yeah, yeah. And what what happens? Uh, he'll he'll come a couple of times a season at least. Um, I mean, it's sort of like we used to be the only child, and now there's like you know these other kids that sure. are getting attention. And we, well, what do you mean, Dick? Dick was over there at PD, and he didn't come. So, you know, so I don't know. Every show's got its own situation, but uh, at least a couple of times a year he comes in and takes the whole the ever-growing casts of all the shows 
uh, out to the the Palm, you know, for a massive massive dinner. Um, so yeah, he he shows up. He brings the family, hangs out for a few days. It seems like it would be a physically demanding show. I mean, I, I you know, there's probably long hours and stuff in all of television, but the fact that you guys so often travel as a unit, which means you're in scenes you're not even in, hmm. um, and that you're also out there, you know, putting out fake fires, but still requires you to suit up in a certain way. Yeah. And um, what what is the? What, it's sort of like it's the it's the the Faustian aspect of this sweet opportunity that's been given to me you know it's the one part that like you know i always imagine i I have this thing and i know a lot of people probably do this where i think what if you had told me what if i could go back in time and tell myself and a lot of it has to do with just reassuring young chris that everything's going to be fine you know that's what a lot of it is or when i was really distressed or going through some some regrettable period um and not just about this show, but in many various aspects. That whole thing you were worried about her for so long, she figured it out and it all turned out fine. I wish I could go back and just tell myself that that's going to be the case. But if I look back, if I went back to a certain point in time and said to myself, hey, all right, you're going through a dry spell right now. You know, you're not booking anything right now. The bills are piling up or whatever. Um, but down the road, without having to go to L.A., and that's key, while you stay here in, in, in Chicagoland, you can get a, you will get a, a series regular gig on a big big network drama uh, that'll keep you going for at this point I can say at least four years going into five. Go back and say that to myself eight years ago. And I think my 48 year old self, I didn't do the math right on that, but you get the idea would say, oh, what's the catch? And there's a catch. Of course there's a catch. The catch is the hours are kind of crazy. I'm not a morning person, you know, because I texted you at 4 a.m. and I hadn't gone to bed yet uh, two nights ago or last night even. Um, So it's getting up when it's dark. It's driving to work when it's dark. It's insanely, we, when we have the, our incidents, our fires, our rescues and all that stuff, well, of course we're daylight dependent. Of course we're driving to work in the dark because we want to be ready to pull the trigger when the sun is officially up. And we're probably going to use every bit of that daylight. So I'll be driving home in the dark too. And, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it right now. Wah, wah. You know, who gives a shit? It's, you're, you're on a TV show. You've kind of got the big thing. The prize that uh, that actors are, are looking for was gainful employment on a regular basis, but it is in it is in my nature to complain. And why would I change? Why would I change? <laughs> Just because I got one thing, you know that 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 is, you know, unquestionably a, a great great gift. It's a jackpot, but uh, it doesn't change my nature, you know. <laughs> so yes, and it's in the cold, and it's in in a lot of in in, in the biggest part for me is. Yeah, I, I love my job, and I, I love the current job I have, and I love the 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 act of acting. But people don't understand how very little of my time is spent acting on that show. We are in the background 
of everybody's shot. This is one thing that is fire-specific. Chicago PD doesn't have this problem to nearly the extent. Chicago Med doesn't have this problem. They break off into their little partnerships and their little units and all that stuff, and then they go. Well, our unit is like 12 people. That's all of us. We are here. We're in the background of this shot. And it just becomes a joke. We have a, a term that we call... Uh, we refer to as OCDBG. Are you working today? Uh, what, what are you doing today? You got any, anything to do today? No, I'm just OCDBG, off camera, deep background. You're here for no really good reason other than my least favorite words, just in case. Why are you keeping me here? Well, just in case we see you in the reflection. It is a huge part of my life spent on set possibly being seen in a reflection. You know what I mean? That's really, that's, that's, that's it, TV and film versus theater, right? I mean, right, you're, right. And, I'll, and sometimes I'll put my, in, I'll put myself where like I can say with certainty, there's absolutely no way they can see me. I'm up on the turntable here on the fire truck. These guys are here, 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 here's the coverage. There isn't a way, there's no reflective surface. There's no way. <laughs> and it's, all right, so uh, can I go back to base camp? I'm not going to be in this uh, coverage at all. Like, no. You're you you're afraid you might we might see you in Casey's thoughts, you know. We don't know. We don't. It's pop. And of course, the, the 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 ads are just covering their asses, which is what I would do. Which is to say, I don't want to be the guy that sent Mouch back to base camp, and it turns out we're going to spin around. The, this camera's going to swivel here, and we're going to see that. You know. So I get that that they're being overly cautious, but that over over cautiousness. That's not it, but. <laughs> that cost me a lot of cumulative hours, you know, over the years. And I'm the old guy, once again, you know, I'm the old guy. I mean, like when I say we're not acting much of the time, if Otis and I, if Yuri and I are hauling a ladder from A to B 16 times, you know, for the various coverage and all this stuff, we're not acting like we're hauling a ladder. We're just hauling a ladder, you know? <laughs> So you look at the scene, and sometimes I'll see a rescue scene, and no mention is made of my character at all. It just says uh, the 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 truck eighty one shows up and blah blah blah. Well, that then I'm there. Truck eighty one's there. I'm there. But that and what that means is someone's going to find busy work for me. Someone's going to put a couple of the silver bullet extinguisher canisters. I'm going to haul those over to. It's always going to be shit work. All that said, in terms of the challenges of doing a show like that um does seem like wow what a lovely little plum oh my gosh at you know you've been doing this a long time you want to do it a certain way even tell me how did you get to the point why are you why were you still in chicago and you had been acting for years i imagine you saw a lot of people go to either coast in search of work or fame and fortune or sure, whatever sure why were you still here in Chicago? Uh, I, I, I guess I, there's a lot of things I'd have to mention to account for that. One of them being I've never been the most ambitious uh, actor. I get my excitement goes from project to project in terms of, oh, I'd like to do that, or this is going to be fun to do that. And some of them are, well, this is a job, and so I'm going to do it, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be a particularly uh, enjoyable experience. Um, so I'd take the good or the bad or whatever, just keep the bills paid. But I was never somebody who's like, I'm going to go to LA, 
If you get a good agent, I'll get a good commercial agent, a good, good theatrical agent. That All that kind of talk just turns my stomach. To be out there in the middle of the industry where everybody you meet has a plan, everybody's either uh, in the business or desperately trying to get into the business, that's sort of weird, toxic-seeming environment. Um, it's never been a goal of mine, any specific thing to be a regular on a tv show or to i hear a lot of actors talk in terms of, well i had a lead role in this and i had a supporting role i don't measure it like that 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 stuff kind of turns my stomach uh that we it just feels like what are you in this for exactly is it is it just a weird stroking of your ego because you seem focused a lot of people seem focused on on what status has been attained through this particular job uh, I never had any specific goal for here's when I'm going to know I've made it. Um, nothing about L.A. really appealed to me. Nothing about the reality of it. I think before I had experienced L.A., I probably had, you know, some idealized vision of, of this, you know, showbiz Valhalla where, you know, everything's, you've arrived now, you're in L.A., you're a Hollywood actor and whatever. But once I kind of saw L.A. for what it was, I don't, I'm not trying to, shoot the town down there's a lot of uh, great reasons to be there and uh, I get it I mean I get the superficial appeal is almost enough for me I get all of that but it seemed more trouble than it would be worth for me uh, I I always felt like and I taught acting for many years and I always felt like <clears throat> what is what does it take to be in this business is not a simple question here's what here's what uh, in broad strokes what an actor should be doing to try to achieve this if this is what you want to achieve but then i would always throw the caveat out there and say well uh, unless you're unnaturally beautiful in which case none of these rules apply to you you don't even have to be all that good go on out to la they'll find you you don't even have to do much just show up places they'll find you you'll you'll get opportunities the rest of us won't get and i didn't want to be part of that world and I understood where I fit in that world and that it would not be fruitful for me there would be no clear path for someone who looks like me to go out there and what I'm not even quite charactery enough to be an obvious character type you know what I mean um so that wasn't that there was no great appeal to me it wasn't like I was holding myself back I wanted to try to keep working here and as far as I was concerned I'd do a play a couple plays a year and get a couple of days on a tv show or a movie or maybe a week here and there and, and that's fine and um, that would be enough to sustain you that was right and, and and also with the assumption I was I mean I wasn't that humble about it with the assumption that a couple of good parts lead to a couple of good parts lead to some bigger parts lead to eventually I did sort of assume that that the scale of the opportunities would be increasing over the years that that as long as I was working and doing good work that that would beget more and better opportunities So we've come up to the hour mark here, but I was enjoying my conversation with Mr. Stolte so much that we kept going. And that's why I think we'll make this our first two-part interview extravaganza here on the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. Next time, we'll pick it up right where we left it. Until then, just a song before we go. This is our pal Terry White of the great quintessential bar band Cannonball. You can see them performing pretty regularly out at Fitzgerald's Nightclub out Berwyn Way. This is from Terry's album Cannon Fodder. It's called Yourself in History. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.